Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to Pediatric Meltdown. I'm so glad that you made time to join me today. My guest today is Jane Mattingly. Jane has used her experience as a young, disabled, and chronically ill woman to inspire her latest project, the AND Initiative. The AND Initiative is a nonprofit that is about gifting and destigmatizing mobility aids to those with physical disabilities and chronic illnesses that impair their daily mobility. Jane talks about eating disorder recovery and body acceptance disability issues daily with her highly engaged community of 20.4 thousand Instagram followers. She has also been featured on NBC News, Apartment Therapy, Business Insider, The Papaya Podcast, Sober Curious, Full and Thriving and Eating Disorder Recovery Podcast, Fox 24 News Now, and more. Jane is also a Say It Brave ambassador for one of the most prestigious and well-known eating disorder treatment centers in the United States, Eating Recovery Center. In addition, she has sat on numerous speaking panels and has given lectures on eating disorder recovery and mental health to students at the University of Dayton, NEDA, WALK participants, and the Alliance for Eating Disorders organization. Please join me in welcoming Jane Mattingly. Hey, Jane, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? I am doing well, and I'm so happy to see you back. I I know lots happened since our last podcast that we did on eating disorders and recovery coaching, and a lot has transpired. And, you know, as we get going on this conversation, because I think it's really important that lived experience can you talk a little bit about what your current journey is is like? Yes, absolutely. I was trying to think back to what year that was, when our last podcast was. It was, it was in 21. 21? Okay, got it. With COVID, it's so hard to figure out the big, years. It's a big blur. <laughs> blur together. I know. Yeah. So since then, on a personal level, a lot has transpired. I've had um, a lot of what I call body grief. I have undergone a lot of surgeries, a lot more surgeries, and I am now currently a wheelchair user. We have moved into a house that we have made completely accessible for my um, mobility usage, and I have a mobility service dog that really helps me out and me being more independent. I'm no longer able to drive. So there's just a lot of changes that I've had to make personally. And that's also changed my professional life too. So I was a recovery coach and I really had to kind of switch gears due to all of the things that were happening. I've had a total of, oh gosh, 14 brain brain and spine procedures and surgeries. And with all of that, I had to kind of really change my focus to more educational. So I now train 
and educate professionals to become eating disorder recovery coaches. And I supervise graduates and recovery coaches who work with body image and eating disorders. Um, I also kind of created this passion project that turned into a nonprofit called the AND Initiative, which is a nonprofit that gifts mobility aids and provides resources, education, and advocacy to those with disabilities and chronic illness to live their AND lives. And that is really something that's near and dear to my heart. And so that's something I've been putting my energy into, but I've really been advocating for people with chronic illness and disability. And so a lot has changed since we last spoke. Yeah, a lot, a lot. Well, and I'm thinking, you know, a lot of people who are listening have kids that they take care of professionally and and maybe personally that have complex and chronic medical conditions and disabilities. And, you know, but we may ourselves not have personal experience either as the patient or as the parent. Now we might, but, you know, but when one becomes disabled or has a child with a serious chronic medical illness yes, and everything looks different and, you know, you, you now have lived experience and, and what has that been like? And for listeners, you know, you have a, a specific condition that is probably more common than we think, but it has taken you down a path that you never expected. No, no. Yeah. I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, EDS. There's 14 different types. The most common type is hypermobile EDS. And people are saying, um, you know, geneticists are saying it's the most common illness that you've never heard of. You know, it's so rare, but it's also they're thinking maybe it's not so rare. You know, it's maybe, you know, in 10 years going to be like people are going to know it like they know MS, you know. But it is this world, like if I looked at it five years ago, so I've been sick for about four and a half years. If I looked at my life five years ago and Jane from five years ago in 2018, if I were to like look at my life right now, I would be shocked. I mean, I would be, I, I wouldn't believe it. There, there'd be no way I would believe it. I mean, the way in which my husband and I and our dynamic, the fact that I have like really very little independence. It's not just the big things. I feel like from the outside, it's like, oh my God, she can't drive. That has to be so hard. And oh my goodness, you know, she has to go to all these doctor's appointments. That has to be so hard. And these surgeries, that has to be so hard. And yes, those are really devastating things. But those are easier to wrap my head around than the smaller things. I think the smaller things are where the grief comes in. The getting my clothes on in the morning, you know, the using a shower chair and in the and while showering, having to like navigate around my house, not being able to go over to friends' houses because it's not accessible. The small grievances that I have, like not being able to go over to my favorite restaurant because it's not accessible. The world is really actually not as accessible as you think until you become disabled. And that's where a lot of my grieving has started to happen. A lot of my grieving has started to happen too with like a lot of 
just like with my chronic illness and just like misunderstandings with people thinking, oh, well, once you're better, once you're better, once you're better, it can feel really lonely. And so navigating a world that just doesn't understand. So it's really interesting, you know, like, again, if I were to look at myself, like if this were five years ago, I'd be like, wow, you know, like, look at her. She's in a wheelchair. That must be like, ah, that's so awful. Cause I had this ableist view of life, but really it's like the small things that are the hardest. Yeah. And you don't appreciate it till you, till you live it. And, you know, I've watched, Truly. you know, my parents, you know, they're in their nineties and sort of loss of skills. This the small things, you know, just taking a shower. When I had COVID, I was so fatigued that I took a shower and I was like, I need to go back to bed now. And and I thought about you, but I also thought this isn't just, you know, gonna get better in a week after I recover. This is something that people who have chronic illness and disabilities, I mean, this is this is your life. And yes. and and you talk about I, I mean, I think the language, you know, body grief and, and sort of, does it fit some of the stages of grief? I mean, are there things like anger and denial, you know, that traditional kind of model we think about? Yeah, somewhat. I, um, there may or may not be something in the works in regards to this um, in the future with how my layout of grief and body grief goes. I might be able to share that in a couple months with the public, <laughs> but I have different stages of body grief that I kind of identify, but I don't think they're linear. I think they're non-linear. I think it's cyclical. And I think one person can be in a certain stage of grief in the, like they can maybe be in a certain stage of body grief and I could be in a totally different stage of body grief and we could both be disabled at the exact same time. Does that make sense? It's so I think envy is a big part of body grief. I think purpose is a huge part of body grief. I think hope, hope and hopelessness is a big part of body grief. I think um, dismissal is a huge part of body grief. And when I think of body grief, you know, you brought up your parents. Body grief isn't just illness and disability. It's also puberty and menopause and aging and all the thing, weight change and all the things humans go through. And what's so interesting about illness and disability is like, we all are going to become disabled at some point. And we're all going to become ill at some point, whether it's COVID or the flu or chronic. And so it's like, we're all really scared of it. And I think that's why there's such this like strong undertone of ableism in our world is because we're so fearful of it. Well. Can you expand on a little bit about, you know, what's meant by ableism? Because, you know, I think we've heard terms like ageism, sexism, racism. What's ableism? It's a tough thing to describe because I think it's still one of those things that's so interwoven into our society that we don't, we've never really been educated on it. I think simply it's described as like the discrimination of oppression of people with disabilities, but it's also the misunderstanding and the unwelcoming and not being considered as people. I think it's the fear of people with disabilities, but it's really this microaggressions. For instance, we just wrote a newsletter on this. It's small things where, for instance, when I was younger, I would hear things like, I'm never going to let myself be in a wheelchair. 
You know, I would hear my family members say that, you know, well, well, my dad, like my grandpa, you know, he was in a wheelchair when he was in his sixties because of his heart and stuff. And, you know, my family members would say like, well, I w- I'm never going to let my myself be in a wheelchair because I'm I'm going to really stay fit and I'm not going to do that. You know, he's just lazy for doing that. And when I became to the point where I was falling and ending up in the ER, mm. I didn't want to go in a wheelchair because there was this little voice in my head that was like, you can't be in a wheelchair. That's lazy. And that was a little like ableist voice in my head, like, like giving up. And so it's like, it is like racism. It is like ageism. It is like, you know, fear of fat and fat phobia, where it's like so very much interwoven into our story, into our narrative, that there's a lot of unpacking to do. And so I have a ton of internalized ableism. Where if I do have to sleep after I shower Mm -hmm. or because right now I'm dealing with my intracranial hypertension where I have like a lot of fluid on my brain, I'm sleeping like crazy and then I feel really guilty. And then I talk to my mom who's a nurse and she's like, Jane, you have fluid on your brain. You need like, of course you're sleeping. And I'm like, but I feel so lazy. And she's like, okay, well, that sounds like the stuff you talk about all the time, like ableism, right? And I'm like, right, right, right. And it's just like this internalized battle that I go through. Yeah, it's sort of like somehow, you know, if you're in a wheelchair that you've you've given up trying to be able. Yes. <laughs> and 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 things happen and and I don't know that you can ever really prepare yourself. I mean, I think, you know, for us, I mean, we're aging and you know, we're thinking about okay, we're putting in a bathroom. Well, we want to make it handicap accessible because maybe we might need it or my parents might need it. You know, my husband, Roger, um, has some mobility issues now. I mean, he's still, you know, walks and things like that, but we couldn't go hiking or wandering all over New York City like we used to. And that's hard. I don't think I always think this is where we are. You know, so that acceptance, I think, is comes gradually like, huh, maybe we're going to have to rethink this and do it differently and be okay with that. But it's, it feels sad, you know, to that's the grief part. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it's not like you ever get there. Maybe it's just constantly like this piece of grief where it's like, oh, this sucks. Like this is body grief. That part is hard. And there are ways to like kind of adapt, but then what happens is the adapting challenges the internalized ableism. For instance, this new year has been quite a struggle with my intracranial hypertension coming back, which has just been really hard, which is when, again, you know, my cerebral spinal fluid is just, but the pressure is very, very high. And we were like, let's go and use our Home Depot gift cards we got for Christmas. We really feel like we're in our 30s. We're like, let's go and get plants for the porch. So my husband was like, okay, well, we can't fit Weedy, my service dog, and the wheelchair in the car and get the plants. So he was like, my plan is bring Weedy, as we always do, and we and I will go and get you like a scooter, like um, not a scooter, like a Amigo. Yeah. Yeah. And I immediately shut down. I looked at him and I said, I don't want to go anymore. And Mm. 
he was like, why? And I was like, I really don't want to do this. And I just totally shut down. But my New Year's intentions was to challenge my internalized ableism. So I was like, okay, I'll do it. So then we were driving in the car and I started to kind of tear up. And I said, so my, the only reason I'm doing this is because my New Year's intentions is to really challenge my internalized ableism. This is really tough for me. But damn, like this is hard. You know, I, I feel like I have a little bit more autonomy in my wheelchair. Like it's part of my body now. Like it really feels a part of my body. And my my sweet husband, <laughs> we're really truly in an interabled relationship. He is very able-bodied. He loves being active. He grabs my hand and he goes, I appreciate your feelings and that has to be really hard and I'm proud of you, but I am so excited to ride the scooter out to you. I can't wait to do that. And I was like, okay, well, I'm glad that you're going to have some joy out of this. So we did it. And it was, he got to ride the scooter and it was great. And it was really, really hard. But also like that was how I was able to experience a little bit of life and get out of the house. That's how I was able to lean into discomfort. And I don't think everyone would do that, right? Traveling around New York in a scooter might be a little demoralizing for some people, but like sometimes we just got to do it because that might be really fun. Right. Yeah. So how did it go? We got all the plans we needed. I bumped into literally everything. (laughs) (laughs) And what's really embarrassing is when you back up, it beeps. <laughs> it's funny. I have to tell you a funny story. So, you know, my my parents are are older and we go to the grocery store and I say to them, we're not getting the carts, the motorized carts because you guys are terrible drivers. <laughs> you know, and my mom, I am not. I said, "Mom, you run into stuff, you run into people. We're not doing that." So, okay. So, I go and park the car and I come back in they are both on the scooters. Oh. And I felt like the mean mom. I'm like, we are not doing this. <laughs> I said, either we walk in the store or we're going home. Now, it they can walk. They just didn't want yeah. to. I, so it, <laughs> and I was like, we're, this is, I, I, so I literally said, okay, we're going home. And oh I felt so mean, but <laughs> I, but they both decided, I said, do you guys want to go sit in the car and I'll just do it? So no, they decided. So they walked the perimeter and it was a good size store. They walked the perimeter of the store and I ran up and down the aisles picking things up. So we, we were able to do it. But that was my experience with the carts. That is hilarious. Well, it, I mean, they're quite hard to, like they're big. The carts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, but yes, the body, the body grief journey is not somewhere that you just kind of arrive and you're good with it. And I think there's a whole other piece. And this is where we, with the AND initiative, Sean talks about this in our nonprofit, where it's like, there's a whole piece for body grief with partners too. He has body grief for me, but for him as well. Like we used to hike and we used to do really fun things and we can't do that anymore. And he has body grief, but just almost secondary to that. Well, and I think there's loss of dreams, you know, and and I think that's probably true. I'm not a parent of a child with disabilities, so I don't know personally, but certainly families I've taken care of that, you know, there is a grief in... 
this is not what I imagined raising a child would be like. I didn't know that they were going to have a feeding tube. I didn't know that they were not going to be able to be understood and that that must be very isolating because your friends might not understand. And I think you said something really important. And that was, it's not like you go, okay, I'm disabled. I'm accepting it. I'm just going to move on. I'm going to pull up my bootstraps and I'm just going to, I'm done now. And I'm, this is my life because there's always something new when you go, oh, God, I used to be able to do that, or I wish I could do that. Yes. Yes. It's always the small things. You know, like for me, I have all these little nicks all over my hands because I run into the doorways with my wheelchair. Those little things where I'm just, it just, you know, it annoys me. I I can't roll around with a cup of coffee because it spills. You know, like those things really bother me. Well, and it's just how much more energy and effort goes into having to do something when you're not. And I imagine people when they've had different kinds of surgeries and, you know, can't do it, then you appreciate like, oh, this, this is hard. And I know, so the American Academy of Pediatrics has a a council on children with disabilities. So it's a big group of pediatricians who are interested in and care for children with complex medical conditions and disabilities. And they've actually, they wrote an article um, that's called the health equity for children and youth with special health care needs, a vision for the future. And it's really talking about this idea of accessibility. And, and you've talked a little bit about advocacy. I mean, what about advocacy and access? I mean, we see restaurants that have wide doors and things. And I even noticed um, Pottery Barn now has a whole section that you can buy hardware yes. and sinks and things like that to make your bathroom yes. accessible. I thought that was pretty impressive. Yes, it's so cool. And I hope that I actually saw this amazing commercial through, it was for Apple. It was last night. It was all disabled folks in the commercial. And it was the coolest, most freeing commercial to watch. And I told Sean while we were watching it, I said, Before I was disabled, that commercial probably would have made me feel really uncomfortable to watch because it's people that look different. It's people that do things different because they're disabled. And I I have a lot of privilege in my disability because I look, quote unquote, like we can kind of talk about what that means, but I have a lot of privilege in that. But when I looked at this, I was like, wow, like a whole commercial dedicated to just accessibility. Like, wow, that is so cool. And I think the world is really kind of transforming to that. But I'm learning, especially living in Charleston, South Carolina, where it's really like the old, it's the old South. People say they're accessible. If you can't rollerblade with a stroller in that place, it's not accessible. That's like a rule of thumb. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And, and again, you just don't even think about the little things that, you know, like the doorway that's just not quite wide enough. Or if it's on a slope. Yeah. And how trying to do that by yourself or somebody who is embarrassing too, or someone who's vision impaired or hearing impaired. I, and, you know, you were talking about kind of societal changes. I think about people that live in larger bodies that now have places that are making clothes bigger. I mean, who knew that that wouldn't be actually a commercial advantage? Like you could sell more clothes if you sold them to people who need need bigger clothes. But I think about people like Lizzo and, you know, that are 
in larger bodies and it's you see commercials and advertisements with folks in larger bodies, you know, so that the more you see it, the more it isn't like an anomaly or right. normal. You know, right. it's like, oh, normal means lots of different things, whether it's pictures of groups of people that are diverse, you know, maybe they're black and brown and white. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly something we can advocate for. Other things that you can think about when you think about advocacy? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I think of advocacy, accessibility, I think really like sharing exactly what people's stories are. I mean, when I think of like storytelling, I think especially young kids and the younger generations, you know, I'm a millennial, but Gen Z, like they're all on TikTok sharing their stories. It's the number one search engine in the world. That's where people are listening. That's where people are looking, seeing their stories. That's where everyone is seeing what is quote unquote normal, right? So when I think of ableism, when I think of fat phobia, when I think of racism, I really think of kind of this linear line. And then the middle is kind of what we deem as right, as appropriate. And it's usually like white, able-bodied, Christian, straight, thin. And then if we deviate a little bit, then it's like, okay, we accept you. You know, it's like, okay, maybe they're gay. Maybe they're a person of color. It's like, okay, if they deviate a little bit more, a little bit more. But the more and more they deviate, the less we accept them. And the less, like, that's okay. And so I think that's why people who are disabled then also have like substance use issues or they have eating disorders or if a person of color is disabled and you know they start to try to correct and get back into that epicenter and it's like no we don't have to correct we can just make it all normal it doesn't have to be this linear thing it can be this messy beautiful thing mm. i think through sharing stories on tiktok and normalizing it and like the commercial i saw last night i was like wow this is beautiful. And, you know, maybe someone younger than me would be like, oh my gosh, this isn't a big deal. But for me, I was like, this is so amazing to see. For someone who's able-bodied, if I see someone who is vision impaired, someone who's in a wheelchair, should I offer help? You know, if someone needs help opening a door, I mean, how do you want people to do that for you? Or do you need that for you? You know what I'm saying? I think it depends on the person, right? For me, I, I think it's great when people ask. I will always answer honestly. So if I say no, thank you, then that's an honest answer. The one thing that I really don't like is when I answer honestly and they insist. Mm. That's frustrating. Yeah. Note to self, ask. <laughs> so yeah. Um, one thing that's really frustrating too that I've learned the hard way is my wheelchair is like a part of my body now. And so when someone touches it or like tries to move it without telling me, and so I can't move my head because I'm fused, my spine is fused, so I can't see. But if I feel someone push my wheelchair, I'm like, what is happening? And it freaks you out. Really freaks me out. So mm, that's important. Yeah. Don't touch my wheelchair. That's important. Well, so in all of this, Jane, because a lot of it's overwhelming and yeah. difficult and sad and hard. So how do you face that and how do you find hope? Yeah, I really do wish it was like, oh, I found it. Like I found <laughs> hope. 
I found it. I really wish it was that way. And I still think that sometimes I ironically hope for that, but it's not. It's small, tiny moments of joy. It's small, tiny moments of joy. Yesterday, I take naps every day. Yesterday was Sunday. My husband works in food and beverage, so he works kind of odd hours. And so on Sundays, he's off and he took a nap with me. And I woke up and he was right there. And when we went, actually, when we went to bed, the sun was shining on my face. And I was like, taking in that moment, I was like, this is, this is why, like, this is my why. This is why I keep going. These are the small moments. Like I'm with my two pets. Well, we have three, but one's the devil. She's a cat, but she wasn't with us at the time. We have my two dogs and my husband, and he's right here. We're safe. We're cozy. My The sun is on my face. This is why. And it was so simple, but truly, like, that is why. And then I woke up, and he was right there, and I was like, everything's okay. Yeah. And it, that might seem really sad to some people because they're like, that's it. But it really is those small moments. And I I really do make a huge practice of gratitude. I am really into like rituals and routines. So I get up, I do my coffee, my skincare, take care of the pets, do my gratitudes, do, you know, my breath work. And I just say thank you to the world, even if that means that the rest of the day I'm in pain and then I cry and and then I say thank you again and then I cry some more and sometimes it's just hard. Do you think having purpose, I mean, I know you've talked about the AND initiative, body grief and some ideas you've had around that. Does that help? Yes, for sure. One purpose has always been my thing. Somewhat a little bit to a fault, I think. I think we could dive into this for hours and it'd become a therapy session. But one thing I've realized is throughout the years, it's been a way of me to cope. I've been like, okay, I'm just going to find purpose in this problem. I'm going to find purpose in this problem and I'm going to make it a business. I'm going to make it a, I'm going to make it a thing. I'm going to make it helpful for other people. And at some point that stops working, I think. So talk about, you also mentioned something to me prior to this podcast, and that was um, hope versus positive toxicity. Oh yeah. Toxic toxic positivity. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So I think there's so much value in having hope and really looking on the bright side of things, right? And then having toxic positivity and saying like, it's going to be okay, you know, just just like think, manifest the good things. It's going to be okay. When life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing can be incredibly invalidating. There's a fine line there, but it can be really invalidating. It can really shut you up really quickly. And I know a lot of people, and I, especially children, when they're not emotionally mature yet, it can just really shut them up and make them feel like, oh, I'm not supposed to be feeling the way I'm feeling. So I'm just supposed to be happy. I'm just supposed to be hopeful. Got it. Got it. Got it. And I think instead we have to say like, okay, tell me more. It's okay to feel this way and let them finish their feeling. Their feeling will finish and maybe it won't be okay. You know, like eventually something good will happen, but maybe it won't be okay. Maybe well, and and what you're saying to me, I'm wondering as clinicians that we are able to say this is hard and sometimes it may feel like it's never going to get better. And 
I'm here to be with you through this ride yeah, and to help as much as I possibly can and to find the answers. But regardless of what happens, I'm here for you. Oh my gosh. If a doctor were to say that to me, I, oh my God, I'd fall on the floor and cry. <laughs> what, what, so on that <laughs> note, what are things, what are things that physicians have said to you that were really unhelpful Oh my goodness. Not that any of your physicians have ever done that, but let's just say. Yeah. yeah, let's just say. Automatically blaming it on weight or when a physician just, I can tell, is wanting to be detached for their own personal reasons, which I'm sure are very valid. Spoken as a true therapist. Always yeah. looking for, like, always looking for <laughs> gr- grace for another person. I'm like, I know they probably have way too much burnout and trauma, but when they are dissociating from it and then they like joke about your issues, that can happen like often. Ooh, yeah, that wouldn't be good. Do you ever feel like that there's too much medicalization, like people wanting to do doctor talk and really all the time and really not talking about feelings all the time? Yes, yes. So yeah, you're just, you're just kind of a number. So with your physicians that you love and adore, what do you love and adore about them the most? I'm, you know, we'll, we'll take it for granted that they are skilled clinicians. I mean, they know their, their craft, but what is it about them? Because it's not just that, right? No, I honestly, the ones that listen and sit and listen, the ones that look at you in the eye and you like sit down and have a a pen and paper and then like kind of sit down and really look at you (laughs) it's that's really refreshing and the ones that I honestly gosh the ones that are wonderful the ones that say I'm in I'm in this with you I've had one of my doctors say like I'm in this with you I'm not going anywhere I'm in this with you I had one doctor cry in a session with me and that was one of the most it was scary but it was also like oh my god I feel seen. I feel heard. I also, weirdly enough, had one doctor Google my condition in front of me. And that was so, I loved that because I was like, thank you for not pretending to know what my condition is. Mm -hmm. Not pretending. Well, and I know for me, parents with children that have especially unusual conditions that are not you know, that it might be more rare or complicated. They've got all kinds of equipment. Yeah. For me, I know that they're the expert. They know way more than I do because they've researched it. They talk to all the experts. So for me, I learn from them. Now, sometimes as a physician, I feel kind of stupid. How do I not know how to do that? Right. On the other hand, you know, I don't know it. So it's kind of incumbent upon me not to pretend. Yes. Yes. I mean, that's something that some of my doctors have said, but I will let you do the talking because I'm sure you know a lot more than I do right now. I brought in like packets before with specials, like specialists. I think some specialists know that they have long wait lists and they're like, oh, these patients have been waiting for a long time. They, they're they coming with packets. <laughs> so, and then some are just, you know, let's just go through it. As a primary care physician, sometimes I feel like my role is not necessarily to be the expert because I may not be the neurologist who knows all the things. I feel like one of the things that we can offer is to be the point person, to be the coordinator, especially when 
a patient is seeing lots of different specialists and may hear different things, that I can be the person that does the coordinating, the reaching out, the clarification. Sometimes I've even called meetings with especially complicated kids where, you know, all the all the physicians were in the room and the parent. Wow. And we were just like, okay, let's talk about each one of these things so that I know what needs to be done. Because, you know, like one physician might want to order tests and another one does too. So could we coordinate it that it could all be done at the same time? It's wow. um, amazing. You know, things like that. But, you know, that takes some doing. But I think that is something that primary care can can offer. But I think some of the things, and if you're a trainee out there, if you're a resident or med student, I think one of the things that you said, well, several, don't pretend to know stuff that you don't know, and it's okay to not know, and your patients appreciate it if you're honest. Listen, sit down, look at someone, be interested in their lives, maybe outside of their disease. I imagine that if your physician knew that you were married and have know something about Sean, know that you have a service animal, can ask those small things. Sometimes I would write myself notes so I would remember siblings' names because, I, you know, the reality is I can't remember all that. But it, it was always fun if I could say to somebody, well, how was your, how was your trip? You know, I know you guys were going to go somewhere. And because then it feels personal, like people know something about you, which, I mean, I appreciate that when my my doctor asks about my husband or my kids. Yeah. Feels so personal. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. Well, as I say on many of my podcasts, it's all about the relationships. I mean, you have to have smarts. You got to know what you're doing. That's kind of a given. But the bedside manner is really about being able to connect as another human being. Yeah. And and I think that's something we can all aspire to. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'll make sure to put into the show notes some resources, anything off the top of your head that you want to share where someone could go to, yeah. listen to? Um, the AND initiative is a great one. If anyone has... EDS or thinks they might have EDS or is hypermobile. It is a genetic condition, so it does show up in adolescence. So the Ehlers-Danlos Society is a great place to start. A really good book is also Disjointed. So I can kind of, I'll give you those resources too to link up. Sounds good. Well, listen, Jane, thank you so much for your time. And, you know, we really we, I really appreciate um, you sharing this stuff because, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And it's important to be humble and ask people, tell me about your life. Tell me what I need to know. How can I be most helpful? And, you know, and also what else can we do? Can we advocate for accessibility? Um, so thank you for, for all that. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for listening. I think this was a really unusual topic, but it's not. It's a really common occurrence to encounter patients, friends, and, you know, really folks in our everyday lives that may have disabilities. And I think Jane's conversation makes you stop and think a little bit differently about what you might say or do, and just to be mindful of others who walk different lives. So here are my takeaways. Number one, thank you to Jane for sharing her very personal story. 
Number two, so much of body grief is the loss of the ability to do the little things. Jane shared that things like dressing, showering, visiting friends, shopping, it's just all harder. Number three, a little bit about Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. There are 14 types. It's the most common genetic syndrome you've never heard of. Also, just FYI, for an upcoming episode on rapid genome sequencing and rare disorders, tune into episode number 130, airing 228, in order of Rare Disease Day. You'll find out some interesting information about screening in infants and children, and really anyone of any age with a potential genetic disorder. Number four, the signs and symptoms and degree of impairment with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome are highly variable. For Jane, the impact has been dramatic, and in her words, I never could have imagined that this would be my life. Number five, so what is body grief? It's loss of doing, of being in an able body. It looks like misunderstandings, loneliness, hopelessness, and yet hope, anger, envy. It may not be going away. It's chronic. It's not linear, but instead cyclical. And family and partners experience body grief too, the loss of dreams of what was supposed to be. And the more the deviation from the norm, the more the exclusion. Number six, what about ableism? The definition is the discrimination or prejudice against individuals with disabilities. What that looks like? Othering, not being accepted, being seen as lazy, microaggressions, assumptions, and lack of accessibility. Number seven, what was is no longer. What is sucks. It means accepting and adapting. This is a hard lesson. And, you know, it's something that folks with disabilities have to really consider day in, day out. And, you know, those of us that might have experienced illness, you know, where you just got knocked down, It was temporary. And so to have this be your life, it really takes seeing this in a different way. Number eight, Jane says, my wheelchair is part of my body. Please don't touch it or move me without asking. I thought that was really important, you know, to make sure that you're asking permission before offering help. Number nine, coping with a disability. Find small, tiny moments of joy. Find purpose. Rituals and routines can be powerful. Number 10, what is toxic positivity? You know that phrase, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. It's not always helpful. In fact, this could shut you up. We need to feel our feelings and just allow that. Number 11, what we as healthcare professionals should never do, pretend to know stuff. That'll get you in lots of trouble. You need to always ask for help. Blame weight. Sometimes bringing up weight when it's not even relevant. Be detached. It's important to be engaged with our patients. Make jokes about the disability or illness. This is no laughing matter. And use doctor speak. It's really difficult when we start falling into medical language. It really is a different language and it excludes people from understanding. Number 12, what we can do, look at your patient, listen, really listen, so that what they experience is being heard. 
Look at them in the eye. See them. Know them. Ask about life outside of the disease. Who are the important people in their life? What do they love? Tell patients that no matter what, no matter how hard the journey, that you will ride the journey with them, that you will be at their side even when there are no answers. Number 13, in the end, it is about relationships. That is the magic. That is the intervention. Number 14, thank you for all you all do for children. This is our gift to them, this being with. I want to let you all know about an opportunity to join together with some colleagues on February 24th at noon Eastern time for a conversation about making over mental health processes in your setting. You can head over to my website, www.medicalbhs.com to register. And you might want to also consider a one-to-one consulting opportunity to do a deep dive. You can email me at gugino.l at medicalbhs.com, DM me on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown, or find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino. Thanks as always, and I hope you have a really great day, and I look forward to you joining me next week for another great conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. In the words of Maya Angelou, Do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino and on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I would love listener ideas and suggestions and hope to hear from you. Thank you so much and I hope you will join me next week.